All right, well, we're in a lesson two now on the assurance of salvation. A lesson might title the, the foundation of assurance. And there's going to be a logical flow to this series on the assurance of salvation. In our first lesson, we are introduced to assurance overall. We framed the issue and we explored why it matters so much. We covered just some basic definitions and distinctions. And then we kind of finished off with a little study on the attainability of assurance. That the assurance of salvation, it's a real thing and it is possible to have. In fact, you should know that the Lord wills for us to know it. He wants us to know that we've been adopted into his family by grace. And so that's what this study is about, to, to understand that, to figure that out, and all that goes with it. And then move, moving forward, imagine most of you still just want to rush right into the basis of assurance. Just like, okay, tell me, how do I get it? Just tell me already what assurance is based on. Do I have to like do something or say something or believe something extra? Or just how, just tell me how I know if I'm a Christian or not. And that is kind of like the fundamental question we're asking when it comes to the assurance of salvation. And we'll get there next week, lesson three, we're going to crack the door on the basis of assurance. But there's one more topic we need to cover first, kind of like a prerequisite for understanding And like I said, you might call it the foundation of assurance. And it's really a right understanding of salvation and then salvation as a gift. If you're going to get aspects of salvation as a gift wrong, you're going to get the assurance of salvation wrong. So we just have to cover this first. Let me be a bit more specific. The basic question we're after in this study with assurance is, well, how do I know that I'm saved? Not, how do you get saved? That's the gospel, and we talk about that all the time. But this is the, the subjective assurance of it. How do I know that, that that's been applied to me, that I'm born again, that I've actually been forgiven? How do I know that I possess the gift of salvation? The answer to that question, we'll find, is, is founded on some key truths. Like, number one, God gives salvation. Salvation is a gift of God. It's his to give. And then number two, when God gives that gift of salvation, he doesn't take back. When given, salvation is permanent. In fact, God goes so far as to preserve his people in that state of salvation. So already this means that if you have received the gift of salvation, you can know for sure that, well, it's not going to be lost. Not based on primarily your effort but on God's power and promises to will keep you until the end. So what we're saying here is that the assurance of salvation is founded on top of something we call the eternal security of the believer. That everything from here on about assurance, you know, next week and beyond, is founded on top of what we're going to study tonight, the eternal security of the believer. In fact, the eternal security of the believer is revealed in Scripture precisely to encourage and assure believers to live confidently in the grace of God. And the gift of salvation itself is received by faith. So if you have faith in Christ, God reveals and wants you to know you're safe in his arms. And that, that's going to be a, a foundation of assurance. Now, that's not the end of the story, as we will see. That's going to lead to other questions like, well, how do I know I have true faith? Because there is such a thing as false faith. We will answer that later as we keep, you know, building up the doctrine of assurance. But, you know, first things first for tonight, we need to establish the foundation of assurance, which is the eternal security of the believer. And then really starting next week, you're going to see how that foundation is vital to the primary basis of our assurance, which is just taking God at his word, trusting in his promises to save based on his gift of salvation, which he doesn't take back. That, I hope, will make more sense next week, but let's get into this foundation. So at the second lesson here, we're just going to do some good old-fashioned Bible study and go through Scripture, and just to establish, to start with, the fact that salvation is a gift of God. It's a gift that originates with God, and then we'll establish that it's a gift that is preserved by God. And at the end, we'll, we'll tie that into how these truths help establish the eternal security of the believer, which is 
the foundation of our assurance. So this is kind of some foundation building, but hopefully this will help you just get, get things straight for all the weeks to come as we keep going. So let's start with this. A couple points here. First, salvation is a gift that is given by God. Salvation is a gift that is given by God. For some of you, this would be maybe nothing but review, but you never know. We can't cover this in, in great detail. I mean, we can. In fact, we spent the better part of a whole year studying the doctrines of grace, for example, which really accentuate the fact that salvation is a gift of God. But let's see if we can summarize, you know, all that in like 15, 20 minutes here, right? So let's, let's just cover three displays that salvation is a gift that originates from God. Just, just track with me and it'll all hopefully come together at the end. But three displays that salvation is a gift that originates with God. Let's start here. First, it's displayed in God's unconditional election in eternity past. Right? Salvation as a gift is displayed in God's unconditional election in eternity past. That God had an eternal plan for this creation. It sovereignly included the fall and the need for redemption. And consequently, God eternally planned to unilaterally redeem for himself a remnant of people. And this redeemed remnant is frequently referred to in scripture as the elect or the chosen ones or the predestined. And these words themselves signify that that their saved status comes from God. They're not the the choosees, they're the chosen. God authored their salvation. And that started with his unconditional choice of them before the world began. And it's not a popular thing amongst many to believe that. I mean, if it weren't just so clear in scripture, we might not believe it, but it's just too clear in scripture. You, know, you can open to Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll, we'll survey a few verses. Ephesians chapter 1. You study the better part of this whole chapter, but we'll just pick out a few for the sake of time. Again, this is just a survey. He says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He says, just as he chose us, he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him, He says, in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. And then just for fun, you can add down in verse 11. It says that in him also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Here's some strong verses the sitting just as clear as can be that, you know, God chose us. On what basis? Well, the kind intention of his will, his plan, his purposes from eternity past. It's a remnant he set his love on and he chose us. He predestined us according to his will, not, not our will. He works all things after the counsel of his will. Let me add some verses for you. First Thessalonians 5, 9. It says, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. God's in control of our destinies. No part of anything is outside of his sovereignty. Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse 13. And Paul says, we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth. You know, the Holy Spirit and faith will be the means by which they receive salvation. But it starts by God's choice of you from the beginning for salvation. God made that choice. 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 9 is a very powerful and straightforward verse. Where Paul establishes that, he says that God saved us and called us with a holy calling. How? It says, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. I mean, how, how were we saved and called? It says just not by us and our works, but according to God's purpose 
and his grace, which were granted us in Christ from all eternity. Just the verses keep going. There's an eternal plan here. This makes sense of a, an example like Acts 13, 48, where Gentiles come to believe in Christ. And it says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as been uh, appointed to eternal life believed. How many of those Gentiles believe that day? Well, as many as had been appointed to eternal life. Like that, that's pretty strong terminology there. Luke doesn't mix words. That there, there was a plan of salvation of God in eternity past. That he, he set his love on some, a remnant to choose, to draw out, to save. A lot more can be said. In fact, if this, I know for a lot of you here, that's just recap. For some of you, maybe I just opened a huge can of worms in your theology textbook. But we, we did a lot of teaching on this on an old Wednesday night series, Doctrines of Grace. You can find that online or come talk to me after if, if that just kind of, just, if you can't think of nothing else for the rest of the night because of this. But suffice it to say, I mean, that this is God's plan of salvation. It originated with him in eternity past. He had a remnant in mind from the start. And those who would receive the gift of salvation were in fact chosen to receive it according to his sovereign will. Now that's just one display of the fact that salvation is a gift that's given by God. There's a second display of the fact that salvation is a gift that's just given by God. Secondly, it's displayed in God's provision of complete atonement in Jesus Christ. It's displayed in God's provision of complete atonement in Christ. Here's what that means. In case you didn't know, we're in desperate need of salvation. Because of our sins, we're cut off from God. We're separate from him. We're under his just wrath because of our transgressions. So if we're going to escape judgment and be forgiven and reconciled and saved, we need something called atonement. What is atonement? Atonement is just a term that refers to the means by which you know, God and man can be reconciled. And so how, how, what does that mean? How, how do we make things right between us and God? All religions view atonement through human merit. That salvation is a human act, something we have to accomplish. It's up to us. You've got to make up for all the bad things you've done. You've got to do good things. You've got to earn your way back to God. You do this through rules, regulations, rituals, keeping a religion. That's how we can erase guilt, pay back our sin debt, and earn enough righteousness to be saved. But biblical Christianity alone views salvation entirely as a gift of God. And that's further evidenced by the fact that God himself completely provided the means by which we can be made right with God. This complete atonement on our behalf. He gave the whole thing to us. He made it all. He planned it all. He provided it all. A hundred percent. We don't do this work of atonement. We can't even contribute to the work of atonement. And that means that this reconciliation of God and man, it's, it's not up to us. It's up to God. He planned it. He provided for it by sending his son Jesus to die on the cross. And so God's provision of a complete atonement in Jesus Christ on our behalf, it further shows that, you know, this whole thing we call salvation, it's just his to give. He didn't have to do any of this. It's just his to give. We see Christ as our substitute. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for himself. He died for us. He's our substitute. He's our ransom. Matthew 20, 28, where Christ said, even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's our propitiation, you know, appeasing God's wrath. First John 2, 2, that Christ is the propitiation for our sins. And 1 Peter 3, 18 says that Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. So that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This is Christ Jesus is the divine Messiah come down to be our our substitute sacrifice, our atonement. Maybe nowhere best put than Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament, this 
Lamb of God who would be slain for us. We like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He took the whole weight of our sin and and put it on the substitute to make atonement. And Christ alone, he's our once for all, a sacrifice for all of our sins. Hebrews 7, Hebrews 10. And so the death of Jesus is the only means by which we can be made right with God. And this atonement was provided for us just by God alone. You didn't do anything when it comes to that equation. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We don't contribute to it. Jesus paid it all. And so there's just the very fact that God on his own initiative and by his power provided a complete atonement for us and on our behalf. This further shows salvation is his work and it's his gift. A third display. It's displayed in God's effectual call to new birth according to his will. And I'll explain that. But it's displayed in God's effectual call to new birth according to his will. A third display of that is just his gift, right? The scripture teaches not only are we cut off from God, but, but we're dead. We're spiritually dead. We're unable to do anything to save ourselves. And God's gift of salvation, it is received through faith. You must believe to be saved. But even that, we we can't do on our own, being spiritually dead. And for us to even receive the gift, we have to be made alive, given new life. That God must raise the spiritual dead and give them new hearts that can willingly and freely respond in faith. And Jesus said, you must be born again to enter the kingdom. But that's by definition a sovereign, supernatural work. Who can make themselves born again? And so the very fact that God has to make us alive to even be able to receive his gift of salvation by faith further shows he's, he's just sovereign over this work of salvation. It's, it's a sovereign grace gift that he gives per his will. And scripture only affirms that it's God's sovereign will that is responsible for bringing us to new life and enabling us to believe. And if you're still in Ephesians 1, just turn the page to Ephesians 2. Or go to Ephesians 2. And uh, for those who, for example, were with us when we studied through the doctrines of grace, I mean, you have to know this passage extremely well, verses 1 through 10. And it's so clearly divided and and arranged in verses 1 through 3. Our problem, we were dead in sin. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. There's nothing redeeming in there. You're just, you were spiritually dead. You're cut off. You're not only walking in sin, but you're just by nature a child of wrath. We're enslaved to sin. We're enslaved to Satan. It's just it's bad news all around. And in that condition, what, what can you do to save yourself or to inch yourself closer to God? Nothing. But that's why it's good news because it's so, there's so much bad news that comes first. The good news starts in verse 4 with two words. You know, but God. That was us, dead, but, but God is going to do something for us. It says, but God being rich in mercy just based on his mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. And he can't help but insert, you know, by grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in, in Christ Jesus. You know, this is why there's no boasting in salvation. God saved us just to make us little trophies in his trophy case of his grace. And what can you say to boast? Like, what, what did you really do? You were just dead. But he made you alive and called you to himself, raised you up all in Christ, through Christ, by virtue of Christ. This is by grace you've been saved. According to what? With just his mercy. Back in chapter one, the kind intention of his will. 
I can't see into that will. It's a hidden will, but he has a will and that, that's what dictates his gift of salvation. But then to, to drive home that this is a grace gift, you know, verses eight through nine, for by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. It says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in him. Now, our salvation by grace through faith, it's just a gift. We don't earn it. That's why there's no boasting because it came by the grace gift of God. He made us alive by grace. Let me quickly add a few verses. First Corinthians 1, 9 says, God is faithful through whom you are called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. First Peter 1, 3 says, God, the father, according to his mercy, caused us to be born again to a living hope. You didn't cause yourself to be born again. He caused us to be born again to a living hope. Jesus said in John 5, 21, just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son also gives life to whom he wishes. Who gets life? Who gets this new life? Well, whoever the son wishes, which is his will, his wishes are the driving force. You know, it's true that those who come to Jesus by faith will be saved, but no one can even do that unless it's granted by the father. Like Jesus said in John six sixty-five, he said, for this reason, I've said to you, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him by the father. You can't come to Jesus unless it's first been granted to you by the Father. That's called a sovereign will over salvation. That God must effectually raise the dead and give them a divine summons to new life. By which they will then freely in their new nature come to Jesus. But you know, this is why even faith is described as a gift in scripture. I trust a lot of you know that, but faith is described as a, a gift ultimately. We just read Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which, which say that. How about Philippians 1, 6, which says, He who began a good work in you will perfect it. God began this work in you. He's going to finish it. And Philippians 1, 29 says, For to you it has been granted to believe in him. The word granted, charizomai, means grace gift. Just your belief in Christ is described as a grace gift. To you it has been granted to believe in him. Hebrews 12, 2 points to Jesus as the author and finisher of our faith. Again, he started it. He's going to finish it. Thank you. This explains Acts 16, 14, which says that the Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Paul was there preaching the gospel and Lydia heard and believed. Why did she believe? Because behind the scenes, the Lord had opened her heart to believe. All right, so that's, that's some fast but pretty serious Bible study. In a short amount of time, though, I hope, in a sense, you're, you're overwhelmed by the biblical testimony that salvation is a gift. It's a grace gift. It was planned by God. It was put in motion by God. It was accomplished by God. It's applied by God. It's entirely his gift to give. You must receive it by faith. There's, that's our human responsibility. Even that is enabled by God's work first of bringing us to new life. Now, so stay with me. We've established kind of one big point so far. And I hope it just kind of resonates and, and you, you feel it. That salvation is a gift given by God. Salvation is a gift given by God. And we're going to add a second point here. There's only two points, so don't fear. A second big point. Salvation is a gift that is preserved by God. He gives it, and then he preserves it. Salvation is a gift that is preserved by God. So let's shift gears now and, and study this. And believers are called to persevere in the faith until the end. And true believers will necessarily do so. But man's work of perseverance is enabled first by God's work of preservation. His work of preservation. That God himself promises to keep his true children in his family forever. And, and nothing can stop God from keeping his promise. That God promises to preserve 
his people. So when God gives his elect or his chosen ones the gift of salvation, he also uses his power to ensure that nothing and no one is going to take away that gift from them. It's not possible. So when a person receives the gift of eternal life, he or she keeps it forever. Again, we'll see how that connects to assurance later. Let's just establish this fact that God or salvation is a gift preserved by God. So I'll likewise give you three displays of that fact. First, preservation is proven by the Father's promises. Preservation is proven by the Father's promises. I want you to turn over to John, John 6. And we'll just do a couple passages and I'll, for the sake of time, I'll read the rest. But go to John 6. Why don't you look at a few? Look at verse 35 through maybe 40. And from our previous studies, we know this well. But nonetheless, let's read again John 6, starting at verse 35, where Christ is teaching the crowd. He said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. The one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. What's that will? Verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me. That of all he has given me, I I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. In that pair of verses, we'll we'll see how big that is later, because verse 40, I mean, that's the human side, right? Just whoever believes, beholds the Son and believes, has eternal life, and Christ will raise that person up on the last day. There's no stopping that. But we see that the divine side, the preservation side in verse 39, that of all these people who are described as the ones whom the Father has given to the Son, there's a select group, the verse 37, that the Father gives to him. Those people, they're going to come to Jesus. All that the Father gives comes. And of all those who have been sent and given to the Son, he doesn't lose any of them. That he is preserving those who believe. The sovereignty responsibility side by side, but we, we can be assured based on his power to preserve. It's just far greater than our power to persevere. Why don't you go to John 10? Any talk of preservation has to go through John 10. Talking about the shepherd and the sheep, Christ being the good shepherd. He lays down his life for the sheep. And look down at verse 26. You know, you know he knew many in the crowd were, were not believing in him. Like it says in verse 25, I, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my father's name, these testify of me. Why were they not believing in him? Verse 26, but you do not believe because you're not my sheep. Do you get that? He didn't say, well, you're not my sheep because you don't believe. He says, no, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. And right after this, he says, I and the father are one. These are more familiar verses on God's sovereignty and salvation. The sheep are saved. The sheep are known beforehand, though. Who's going to believe? Well, those whom the Father has set his love on, the the elect. They're given to the Son. And they will eventually be called. The, The Father will send them to the Son, and they will come, and they will receive in faith. But we see here the sheep are evidenced by following Jesus. And in that moment, they're given eternal life. And when that happens, well, there's assurance that they're never going to perish. Verse 28, that the son gives to them eternal life. They'll never perish. Why will they never perish? Well, there's no force capable of taking them out of the the son's sheepfold, the son's hands. 
He says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Same goes for the father. He likewise, father and son, are working together to preserve the sheep in the sheepfold. And there's just no one, no thief, no robber that can take them away. You see how the father and the son's omnipotence are the deciding factor here. He says, they will never perish. That's ume in the Greek. It's a double negative, which in the Greek, though, that just means it's like a super strong negative. In English, a double negative cancels each other out. But in Greek, it just makes it stronger. Like it's just not possible for them to perish because the father and the son are preserving them. And the flock is kept safe because of the power of the good shepherd, not because of the power or the ability of the sheep. And left to themselves, the sheep would get lost. If we could lose our salvation, we would have lost it many times over. Uh, but it's because of the, the power, the preserving power of the father and the son that we, we don't. The good shepherd secures his sheep. Again, this is security of the believer. It's based on God. Again, for time, I'll read you a few verses here. 1 Corinthians 1, 7 through 9. It speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son. Now, God's faithfulness is on stake here, that, that he called you into fellowship with Christ, And it says that he will confirm you blameless to the end as he promised. Otherwise, he's not faithful. God stakes his own faithfulness on confirming those who he called to the end. We already mentioned Philippians 1, 6, that the one who began a good work in you will complete it, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. How about 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24? He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. How are they going to be preserved complete? And he's talking about in the faith that that the entirety of their being is preserved complete in and until the coming of Christ Who's going to ensure that happens? Well, he says, faithful is the one who called you. And well, that same one is going to bring it to pass. That that God, by his faithfulness, will ensure they stand complete before Christ when he comes. This is just his preserving power. And Paul prays that God would preserve them. If that's up to us and our will, that, that prayer is pointless. But God prays knowing God can and will faithfully preserve his people just as he called them, or rather Paul prays that God would do that. So you see God's promises and really his power are actively preserving us, that we're preserved by the father's promises. Let's add a couple real quick. Number two, preservation is proven by the son's prayers. We're now establishing, you know, the second big point that salvation is a gift that's preserved by God. We see that in God's promises to preserve. Now, what about the son's prayers? And you go to John 17, just quickly, but the high priestly prayer where the son prays, and he's only praying for his disciples. He explicitly says he's not praying for those in the world. He's praying for his disciples and those who would come to faith through their word. And there's a lot in here, but just look at verse 11 and 12 briefly here. He says, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, his disciples. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you've given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that scripture would be fulfilled. Now, of course, refers to Judas, who never was a son of God. He was always a son of perdition, and he perished. But for for the sheep, for those chosen, Christ actively preserved them. And and now, as high priest, he's still preserving. This is his high priestly prayer, which continues in heaven. And he's praying to the Father here and hereafter that God would, what? Keep them in his name. Now, that's a strong prayer. You think God's going to deny that prayer request of the son to keep his disciples in his name. And the son is interceding. 
right? Romans 8.34, Jesus died, was raised. He's at the right hand. He intercedes for us. And then it goes on to say, who will separate us from the love of Christ? I mean, if, if Christ is interceding for us to this end, who will separate us from the love of Christ? And then Hebrews 7.25, that, that he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ is our active high priest. He is at the right hand of God. He, is, he lives forever. He's greater than a human high priest. He's continually interceding for his people that they might be saved forever. There's no stopping that. The son never stops interceding for those whom he died. He made atonement for them as high priest. There's two jobs of a high priest. You make atonement and you pray. You intercede. And Christ made atonement for his people and, and now he intercedes for those people. And God always hears him. So you see preservation proven in the son's prayers. And it's to wrap it up. Preservation is proven by the spirit's sealing. By the spirit's sealing. And this is uh, Ephesians 1. Again, I'll read that real quick. Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. And after mentioning in the whole of chapter 1, how the father chose us, the Father predestined us, the Father elected us in Christ, how the the Son redeemed us through his blood. What's the Spirit done for us? Well, 13 and 14, it says, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise. It says, who's given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. What he's saying is that the spirit, as we believe we're indwelt by the spirit, the spirit is given. It's like a down payment. One that guarantees full payment in the future. You're, you're God's possession. He set his love on his people. They're his. He's calling them to himself. He's redeeming them. There's a past, present, future aspect to that redemption. And uh, even in Christ, we still await the finality of our redemption. Well, he gives the spirit a, as that down payment. Like it's, it's a done deal. It's just a matter of time. Here's the spirit that you might know. It's a pledge binding God to make good on his promise. He started the good work. This is him beginning the good work in you through justification, initial salvation, giving the spirit. That's enough to tell you, though, because of God's promises and preserving power, like it's, it's a done deal. You're good to go. It's just a matter of time. You know, it speaks about the Spirit sealing us. You have in the background here the Roman seal, which carried total authority and security and protection. And the power of that seal was tied to the power of the state. And likewise, the power of the seal of the Spirit on us is, is tied to the power of God himself. It's just an unbreakable seal and, and stamp of ownership that God is, is sealing this person for the day of redemption. No one can break that seal. No one can steal that person away from God's possession. You know, verse 11, we've obtained an inheritance through, it says, you know, we, we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. The Spirit will guarantee we will receive the fullness of that inheritance. And we'll see later how the Spirit within us testifies that we have indeed received it. And we are sons. Well, you put all this together, though. You have the fact that you know, our salvation comes to us ultimately per God's sovereign grace. He adopted us as sons, it says in verse 5 and 6. Simply according to the kind intention of his will, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. I mean, that's it. It's not up to us to gain salvation. And it's not ultimately up to us to keep salvation. Now, of course, there's balance. We have human responsibility. You must believe and you must keep believing. You have to persevere in the faith. If you don't, well, that shows you're, you're not saved. But we've learned that ultimately our entrance into the faith and our remaining in the faith are based on God's sovereign will and power. Now, ultimately, we cannot lose our salvation because it's kept by God's will. There's no one or no, no, nothing that can thwart his will. And the love of God for his adopted children 
It's unconditional. It started unconditionally. We think you're going to do something to take yourself out of his family. It's unconditional to begin with. That does not give us a license to sin. That the one who thinks that probably is displaying they've never been born again. We'll cover that later. Uh, But from God's perspective, he does not ever unadopt those whom he has adopted. And so just as we finish our time this evening, let's try and connect this to, or at least start connecting this now to the assurance of salvation. We've done some Bible survey. We've established a couple truths that first, God gives salvation. He's sovereign over salvation. May not be a popular thought with some, but there's just, there's just a tidal wave of scripture establishing the fact that, that God gives salvation per his will. And secondly, we establish that when God chooses to give salvation, he doesn't give back. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't rescind the offer. And to the contrary, he's even actively preserving his chosen ones in their state of salvation to the end. And so this is referred to as our, our eternal security. So God gives salvation. God preserves salvation. But to whom does this apply? does not apply to everyone, obviously. It applies to those referred to as the elect, the chosen ones, right? Who are that? Or who are they, rather? How are his chosen ones identified? The answer is by faith, right? From our human perspective, that's how we identify the elect, those who believe, those who confess Jesus as Lord. So start connecting the dots with assurance. Do you have faith in Jesus? Have you accepted God's offer and gift of salvation in the gospel of Jesus Christ? And that is, after all, the human means of appropriating the promises of God. If your answer is yes, you can say, I have genuine faith in Christ and Christ alone in this, in this full gospel. Well, that means, by God's word and promises, he's already made you alive. He has justified you. He has reconciled you. He's already adopted you. He's granted you the gift of salvation. And it means he is actively preserving you. And your assurance of those truths then is mostly just a matter of, well, trusting God, trusting his promises to save forever those who believe in Jesus. God in his word says, those who believe in Jesus are saved. He says they possess eternal life. And he promises to preserve them to the end. And so, if that's you, if you believe, ultimately based on your faith and trust in his promises, well, you want assurance, just take God at his word. Just believe what he says. He wrote it. He promised it. You see what he has written. Just like, just believe that. And we will find, especially next week, that's the ultimate basis of our assurance. And assurance, of course, is obviously subjective. And you're going to have questions like, but, but still, how do I know I, I don't have a false faith? How do I know I'm not mistaken when I say I believe in Jesus? You know, I doubt my own faith. We will totally cover that. But hopefully this just gets you to start understanding that ultimately that, that, that the bottom level, our assurance in salvation is not ultimately based on us, our performance, our works. Do our deeds play some part in confirming or denying our assurance and our acts of love, we'll find out, yes, there's some part that our performance plays that needs to be put in proper perspective. That's why we're not starting with, you know, are you a good person? But ultimately, our assurance at the deepest level is going to be based on just, well, faith, trusting in in God who's given this gift. He preserves this gift. Take him at his word. He says, if you believe, you're saved. Do you believe? You're saved. And that's that's a, a foundation of assurance. We'll make a little over time, but let's just finish one last verse that joins these thoughts together. Romans 8. Let's just do this real quick. Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8 really is the culmination of, of Paul revealing a sovereign salvation. It's meant, all that he's writing here about salvation in Romans 1 through 8 is given to encourage believers and give them assurance, which enables them to persevere despite suffering. And they were suffering and they were going to suffer. 
But look what he says. And for the sake of time, we just, we'll start verse 28. There's a lot. Maybe we'll come back to this another time. But he says, verse 28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. These whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. And the whole point of this passage is to encourage these believers who, they may have been suffering. They were, they were going to suffer. But to let them know that, you know, God is still in control of all things. Not all things are good, but he's going to work all things for good for those who love God. Who are those who love God? Where there are those who've been called according to God's purposes. God has purpose here. Nothing can stop his purpose. His purpose is from before the world. This is his purposes and salvation from before the foundation of the world to conform us to the image of Christ. But what really stands out in this passage is what's often referred to as the golden chain or the unbreakable chain of, of God's saving purposes. Starts with those whom he foreknew. He set his love upon in advance is what that means. But those whom he foreknew, he predestined and he called them. He justified them and he glorified them. These all come by God's will, his power, his purposes, his promises. I mean, look, even glorification. We, we, we actually haven't been glorified yet. But we believe Paul sees it as so certain that he refers to it using the heiress as past tense. It's, it's like it's a it's as good as done, even though technically we're not glorified yet. We can treat it as, as if it's already happened in a sense, because just that's how certain it is. That if you've been foreknown and, and predestined and called and justified, that's us right now, like there's no stopping you from being glorified. Because it's, this is God's plan. It's his purpose. It's his will. He's working things out according to that will, which has, for those who are called, the end goal of being conformed to the image of Christ. And so is it possible for God's predestined plan to fail? It's not possible. Is it possible for some who are you know, predestined and justified to fall away, you know, lose their adoption, lose their justification and, and not be glorified? It's not possible. And really the whole point of the rest of the chapter is that it's just to further show like nothing can do it. Nothing can interrupt that chain. Or you believe you've been justified? Can anything stop you from being glorified? What can stop that from happening? Nothing. Let's just finish and read 31 and following. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? And he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will, not, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies, who's the one who condemns. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So who will separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we're being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. They were suffering. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Just to tie this together. Paul writes this, that we would ultimately find our confidence, not in ourselves, but in God. And therefore our assurance ultimately in God. How do you know you're saved? Assurance of salvation. There is a human element to that. It's subjective by definition. We will study the role of your works, your deeds, your righteousness, your fruit, your love for others. But you need to know that the primary basis of our assurance is not based on the human element, but the divine that it starts with knowing all that God has done and is doing to give us his gift of salvation and see it through to the end. 
And then assurance you'll find is, is largely just a matter of taking him at his word, trusting his promises to save and secure those who know Christ. We see the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They're all working together to save and, and bring these people, the elect, to glory. What can stop that? What can separate that? Nothing. And does that not assure you? And do you believe in Christ? That should assure you. That should give you confidence. That should give you hope. That should, therefore, enable you to, well, do your part, just to persevere, even though you might suffer. And that's the point of, you know, Romans 8. It's not the end of the story, but this is a big part of the story. Assurance, we'll find more and more, is, is founded on the eternal security of the believer. And so the more you can know and trust God's work on our behalf to save those who believe in Christ and preserve them, well, the more you can just rest assured. Now, I'm not perfect, but the one who started a good work in me, he's going to finish it. I'll do my part, my human side, I'll hold on till the end, but I can just take my greatest confidence and assurance knowing that he who began this work is going to finish it. That will give you uh, the peace and the security you, you need just to press on. We're in his hands, therefore we need not fear. Well, there's more to come. So we'll see you next time. We'll keep building on this and uh, really start getting into the basis of our assurance next time. So we'll see you then. Let's finish in a word of prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we, we praise you tonight for this tour through your word and just beholding the, the glory of salvation. Even if that's all we did by itself, that's reason to pause and give thanks and remember the God we serve and what he has done for us, that though we were undeserving, we we're enemies, spiritually dead, children of wrath, you'd have been perfectly just to, to leave us in sin and, and be glorified in judgment. But per the hidden counsel of your will, just based on your mercy and, and your love, you, you called us to yourself, you chose us, you predestined us to inherit the blessing, the blessing of new and eternal life and, and the kingdom and this, this eternal inheritance. What can we say to these things? Can we boast? Can we you know, puff up ourselves as if we are better than, than those who don't know you? We know it's simply by your grace and your grace alone that that we, we are here today even, and that we, we follow Christ. I pray as we, we contemplate on these truths and we just pile on top of that, the fact that you also preserve those who, who are in Christ. This, this already starts building up our hope and our, our assurance, knowing that ultimately our confidence is in you to keep us and not just in us to keep us or to know that we are in your will, but we, we need your work powerfully at, at work in our hearts. And to bear witness through the spirit that we are sons of God. Your promises are primary. And I pray we just, we study them, we search them, we know them more. And then we, we trust in you. And faith is the answer to salvation and ultimately to assurance as well. To grow our faith in you and in what your word has promised to us. Till next time, keep us in your will. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.